Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario, there are dozens of different ways to book a vaccine. Unfortunately, many of them are frustrating, confusing, and inefficient. Apparently, an Ontario company built the most successful vaccine booking system in Canada, but they're using it in Nova Scotia, not in Ontario. We'll get into that in just a couple of minutes. The world desperately needs coronavirus vaccines. So, why are patent protections stopping pharmaceutical companies from producing those vaccines? And a new poll suggesting Canadians are unmoved from the latest federal budget. Daryl Burker, the CEO of Ipsos, joins us with all those details. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Right off the bat, how's it going trying to get your vaccine booked? Have you done it yet? We have heard story after story uh, over the last couple of months now about people that have tried, uh, they, you know, they're left on hold, they're, if they're due, they're waiting and waiting and waiting for sometimes an hour, more than an hour, to try to book one and then find out that they can't get one anywhere near their place. I mean, it's an awfully frustrating situation. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. There are places in the country that have actually got a much more efficient system, and uh, we want to talk about that right now. This is maybe an opportunity that Ontario could have had but didn't. Uh, and this is all about a company that, uh, that actually has done a lot of work here in Ontario that is now plying their trade in uh, places like uh, Nova Scotia and a couple of other provinces and doing so quite effectively. Uh, to talk to us about this, we're pleased to welcome to the program Catherine Atkinson, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Canimmunize, rather, sorry, Catherine, uh, and, which is the company which we're, the, we're we are referring to that's done so much great work. First and foremost, Catherine, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Bill. Okay, let me go back to, maybe to early days here. Once we all of a sudden decided, okay, we've got the vaccine, which surprised most of us that it came along as quickly as it did. The biggest challenge, of course, was, okay, how do we get that out there? How do we get it into the arms of the public? Uh, and there was a lot of concern at the time that said, well, this is all new to us. And in, in reality, Catherine, it wasn't. I mean, vaccination programs and immunizations have been going on for quite some time. It's just a matter of, of how efficient you can be, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, public health across the country has had a lot of experience in mass vaccination clinics for, as you mentioned, years and years and years. And many jurisdictions were thinking about how they were going to support the COVID-19 rollout well before the vaccines were licensed and going into arms. And for us working with Nova Scotia, that was certainly one of their focuses in the fall, well ahead of actually getting any vaccine across the border, was how are we going to facilitate distribution and how are we going to keep an eye on the data so that we can make evidence-based decisions as the rollout progresses? And I think that's sort of where we are now looking at what's next, what is a smart reopening look like, and how do we have systems in place that really support that next stage? When I looked at what's happened here in Ontario, and, and I'm going to be critical about this because I went through the process of trying to book our vaccines, and it, it can be difficult. It, it reminded me of those old pictures we used to see of, uh, you know, the 5,000 shoppers that were lined up outside of Walmart on Black Friday morning at 4 a.m., and the doors open, and they all want to get in the door at once. Now, that seemed to be the way things were going here in Ontario. The Gen Xers have been accused of, of trying to, you know, hoard this thing and get in there. The 40-plus population couldn't get through, and on and on it went. Uh, there needs to be order, and and well, companies like yourself seem to pride themselves on that. You've got a system that, that has been proven to work quite effectively. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it's a really challenging situation for all governments across the country. Um, and all of the systems, including ours, have had their fair share of struggles. We know mm -hmm. how hard it is uh, to support such a dynamic rollout. We've got multiple products, changing inventory, changing eligibility requirements shifting of second dose follow-up. So that was one of the main things that we worked on with Nova Scotia was how do we, at a clinic level, be able to adapt when your second dose is due automatically based on the inventory and public health guidelines at the time. This is a, a really tough situation, and we're just really proud to have worked with Nova Scotia and had a, the successful rollout that we have. But it's not been without its challenges. Well, and, and I, I, I appreciate you saying that because I'm, I don't want to, you know, create the illusion here that this has gone picture perfect and everything is. I mean, it's still a, a very challenging process to get this done. Uh, it just seems to us as if uh, some people are doing it much more efficiently than others. Uh, you've done work in Ontario in the past, though, haven't you? Absolutely. So our company, Cannabinize, was actually spun out of the Ottawa hospital after working on digital immunization systems for about eight years there. So this is an area we've been working in well before the pandemic. And over the years, we've had incredible partnerships with Ottawa Public Health, Toronto Public Health, as well as the Ontario government to connect the Cannabinize public app. So it's a free mobile application you can use to track your own vaccinations. 
to the Ontario Registry. It was actually an Auditor General recommendation um, to help Ontarians get access to their immunization records. So it's work that once we're through the bulk of the pandemic, we're looking forward to restarting. And certainly we're in conversations now about how to enable, as I mentioned, smart reopening. So returning to work and using public health and immunization data to facilitate that in a safe way. Talk to us about the process, uh, because you it sounds from what I've read here so far anyway, you had the infrastructure for this already in place, and it's just a matter of applying that to the, each particular province and, and their needs, and with the full understanding, of course, that every province is going to be different by, you know, vis-a-vis population and things of that nature. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, we have been working in immunization and digital immunization systems for many years. However, this past fall, just ahead of the COVID vaccine rollout, we were working with the CAN Health Network and Briere Hospital in Ottawa on an end-to-end system to support their flu campaign during COVID. And that's a system that's been adapted in partnership with Nova Scotia. So it's everything from, you know, the government setting up their clinics and allocating doses, setting up those booking pages, people getting their appointment, matching them against the provincial registry, um, you know, filling out their forms. You can provide your consent for immunization and all of your demographic information online. And then when you get to the clinic, the immunizer already has that in front of them. It's a really quick process of reviewing that with you, documenting the immunization for our immunizers in Nova Scotia's three clicks. So it's a very easy to to use system. And then as you're walking out, you get your digital immunization record in your email and you've got your second dose booked there. And then all the data goes back to the Nova Scotia government. So they can see in the province at any time how many immunizations are going into arms, whereabouts and and sort of what's next. So it is an end-to-end solution in Nova Scotia. But obviously, you have to apply that uh, that structure, infrastructure that you just talked about, uh, to to whatever the government policy is. I mean, in Ontario, for instance, they pretty much initially, anyway, uh, decided to do it demographically, starting with the oldest and most vulnerable, and working their way down through age groups and things of that nature. Is 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 that the process that you're comfortable with, and is that what happened in Nova Scotia? Absolutely. So in Nova Scotia, as well, they started with 80 plus year olds after they finished the long-term care immunizations mm-hmm. and yeah. have continued to decrease the age intervals. But um, as I mentioned, these rollouts are, are really complex. So in parallel, they've been able to target healthcare workers, high-risk individuals through mobile um, clinics and vans that are actually going around to regions and immunizing shelters and Um, group homes. So there's kind of been a blended approach of in the public, a decreasing age eligibility, and then parallel targeting high-risk individuals. And all through our system, we've been able to help support that. Now, I'm not going to ask you to criticize other methodologies and other companies. Uh, I wouldn't ask you to do that, but I can, because uh, uh, I'm, I'm just going through what's going here in Ontario. And, and the way I'm looking at it right now, and I just want to get your generic uh, comment on this, I think one of the major problems with the Ontario rollout here is there's just too many things going on at once, uh, too many different websites to go to, too many different companies that are doing this, and you have, you know, you're referred over to this. Uh, your company, what you seem to be doing here, Catherine, is, is one-stop shopping here. You come, come here, we'll get it, uh, get it done for you. That's, is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it's a fair assessment of how Nova Scotia has engaged Canimunize and our incredible team has been working with them. We started this in early December. We meet every single day and discuss sort of what's going on, what are the priorities and, and what needs to be delivered. So it's been an incredible partnership where we're co-designing the system um, and delivering software that's meeting the public health needs um, each and every day. There's been a lot of long hours to make this happen in just a few short months. And again, I really have to acknowledge the hard work of our team as well as the team at Nova Scotia because it, it's been a, a big focus for the government. And there's been a really strong leadership from day one about how to support this rollout and how to ensure it's not only a good client experience and we're taking feedback as as a citizen's book and and give their positive and negative feedback about how we can adapt and change, but also um, to adapt as as the rollout changes with more doses coming in the country, different products, that sort of thing. So it's been a kind of joint approach where we've been engaged as a vendor, but also as a partner to co-design and bring our expertise and all of the work that we've done over the years to Nova Scotia. 
Well, it's not surprising because I think we've pretty much held Nova Scotia up as one of the provinces that got it right. Uh, I mean, nobody's perfect in, in trying to defeat this virus and, and the, you know, the problems that have resulted from it, but uh, they've listened to the medical advice and to the medical experts from day one, and they've kept their numbers down and, and done a pretty decent job. I know they're having a bit of a surge these last couple of days, but everybody seems to be having that. But Premier Rankin and his staff seem to have uh, got a pretty good handle on what needs to be done. In other words, listen to, to the experts like yourselves and other companies and, and other physical or physicians rather that seem to be able to do this. And, and it looks like your company is a pretty good fit for that. I mean, I mean, it's just a matter of saying, look, if this is a, a company with some success, this is what they know how to do, uh, let's apply this. And it seems, according to the numbers I've seen, worked out very well in, in that province and other provinces as well. Absolutely. I mean, immunization is our bread and butter. We've been in this space for several years, so we're really excited to partner with provinces like Nova Scotia. And again, you know, we're in discussions with Ontario now about how to enable a smart reopening and how to use vaccine data to enable that so we're excited about the partnerships and appreciate all of the hard work that has gone into building the technology and the expertise within our company and within public health and we really believe that the way to do this right is to partner with public health and industry to deliver the best solutions in a, a quick way to get out of this. i'm excited to get out of the pandemic no kidding, aren't we all? And we're waiting with bated breath for that to happen. Uh, how did you handle the surge? Because I know just about every place that started the program and says, okay, we're open, the website is available now. Uh, for instance, in Ontario, it crashed a few times, like different websites, because there's too many, I think, too many people supplying the stuff here uh, in too many different manners. But anyway, were you able to accommodate the big rush that always starts at the beginning of something like this? Well, I have to say we have had our challenges as well. And initial high load, we did have some system uh, challenges ourselves. But I think, you know, the public, I cannot emphasize enough how complex these things are. It may seem like, you know, you're booking a concert ticket, but at least with our system in Nova Scotia, we're displaying eligibility for appointments all across the province. We're actually matching patient identifiers with the, the client registry in Nova Scotia. We're allowing you to fill out all the forms for the product that you're going to be receiving at the clinic that you um, chose. So there is a lot of complexity here. And uh, we have had some rough patches and some bumps. But luckily, uh, we've been able to kind of come out the other side and our system's working really well. And as eligibility increases, we're seeing really good performance of the system. But, you know, I, I can't say that it's been perfect. No, but it's getting rave reviews. I don't know if you saw the piece. I'm sure you did in the Toronto Star the other day. Uh, Ann Dempsey, who's a reporter of the Star, uh, actually described the frustration she had in trying to book uh, appointments for her parents. And uh, one of them, by the way, lives in Nova Scotia, so they can speak firsthand about your product here. Uh, a very brief description. Uh, it says, uh, this is what Ann wrote. I typed in uh, her address, her mother's address, that is, and postal code, and was taken to a page that gave me a long list of options organized by location, starting with the one closest to home. Each option clearly indicated whether the site had availability or not, so I didn't have to waste time clicking through to find appointments. Uh, I know people that have been frustrated here in Ontario are going to hear this and say, why can't we be doing this here? Uh, but it seemed to work very effectively in, in uh, Nova Scotia because, you've, as I mentioned, you've got everything rolled out here as opposed to the, well, the some people call it a mishmash. There are other adjectives, but I, I common good dictates that I can't really use them here about what went on. Let me ask you just on a hypothetical question, though, Catherine. Uh, could you implement something like this? I mean, Ontario's program is Ontario's program, but, I mean, the vaccination program is, is not going to end anytime soon. There's still a lot of work to be done here. Uh, could you, if you were asked, uh, implement something like that here in Ontario? Or would that, is, is, it's a monumental task, I understand, given what's already gone on. Well, you know what? Well, we're a proud Ontario company. We'd love to take our learnings and come here and see how we can help and probably learn from the experience of, you know, vendors and pharmacies and everything here as well to improve the product. So we're very keen to help and hopefully be able to come home and <laughs> use some of our our technology here. And as I mentioned, I think looking forward, you know, vaccination campaign isn't ending. It looks like there's going to be additional boosters. We're going to be able to yeah. open up eligibility to the pediatric population. So kind of being able to support that in parallel with a smart reopening is really key. A key. So we're uh, we're here to help, and we'd love the opportunity to partner with public health units. As you mentioned, we have great relationships with Ottawa and Toronto Public Health. Um, the ministry also uses the Canadian Vaccine Catalog, which we 
we run for standardized terminology, which helps with interoperability of vaccination records. So we're ready to help and kind of waiting for the call. Well, do me a favor and stay by the phone uh, because I'm going to be asking the province about this, and I'm sure other people are too after this uh, article appeared in the Star. Because uh, there's, uh, as one person told me, it's never too late to do the right thing, and I think we really need to do something about improving the pro- program here in Ontario. Uh, Catherine, uh, thank you so much for the time today, and uh, congratulations on the rollout so far with your company. And uh, here's hoping that we can talk about this again in the future as you continue. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Catherine Atkinson, Chief Operating Officer for Can Immunize, which is uh, doing great work in Nova Scotia. Now, I, I explained that to you, but how easy it was. One phone number, and they actually on this same page told you here, here, here is what's available uh, closest to you and the times that are available. Now, you, you contrast that uh, with what happens in Ontario. The, the writer of the piece in the Toronto Star uh, talked about that, you know, chasing vaccines from Costco to Walmart to Shoppers to Rexall to Loblaws independent pharmacies, all of which have separate and very difficult booking systems, which is the problem. That's the gist of it here. There's just too much going on here, too many things to do. And if you don't get one, you got to go to the other one. Do I have to cancel this one? This is one-stop shopping. And governments need to realize when they're setting stuff up like this to make sure they partner with people that know the programs and know what they're doing. And uh, these people that can't immunize seem to have their act together, uh, not so much here in a lot of the provinces here in Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a a move afoot right now to at least have this discussion right now. Uh, We need vaccinations, not just here in Ontario. I'm talking globally, worldwide. We need vaccines. We need more of them. Uh, There's there's a problem here, and it's a legal problem, really. It comes down to patents. And there's a a great op-ed piece that was written in uh, the conversation in The Guardian uh, the other day that says the world is desperate for more COVID vaccines. Patents should not be getting in the way. I know this is a delicate balance because you're getting into the legalities, et cetera, and you're working with for-profit companies, but uh, there there are some precedents for looking at other options. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Nancy Oliveri, who is a physician and professor of pediatrics, medicine, and public health sciences at the University of Toronto and also a senior scientist at Toronto General Hospital. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, being with us again today. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? Great to I'm doing you. fine. I'm, I'm getting my shot today, so there's, there's oh anticipation. God, that finally, finally, it's yeah, right oh, after I, I finish on the show today. So I that's that's one Hamilton closely. Yeah, my, my I, well, I know. Well, well, you've got a history here. I understand yep. totally. Let's let's talk a little bit about that, if we could, Doctor, about what we're doing here in patents. And I know that we've we've mentioned to our listeners in the past. I mean, we have to always remind ourselves that we're dealing with Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and Moderna. Uh, these are for profit companies, and and they charge a certain amount. We don't often find out the price for for dosage, etc. But they also is the issue of patents. And uh, I understand that you know these guys have done the work to a large extent anyway, and they've got this. But uh, the my understanding is a lot of these patents are for like 20 years so the, the opportunity of opening up the market is pretty slim at this stage isn't it as usual bill you have the whole whole thing in a grip and you've identified the fantastic article written in the guardian yesterday the problem is is that you know we're desperate for vaccines uh the whole world is desperate we're close to 100 countries haven't had a single dose and what you're saying is in part true that the, the companies have done the work but let's not forget that there's been enormous public funding public funding gone into these and just the technologies that made these uh, vaccines possible all of them and that you know this is the whole problem with patents is that there's a lot of you know when you look at um, a recent study you see that federal funding from the US contributed to all not 90 or 75% all the drugs that were licensed over a 10-year period. That's public funding going into that. How is it possible for then pharma to come over and say, we'll manage secretly deals in which we make the money in perpetuity, we um, keep these patents. And this is just a, this is just, you know, patents are just a, a way to keep money in pharma's hands. And that may be debatable in a time where we're not facing COVID and a panic and billion, two billion people not seeing their first dose. But now we, we have a chance to make vaccines available through reducing these things called intellectual property agreements. And they're just patents. And there's been a whole history of doing this. The Second World War government said, hey, pharma, you got to give us the antibody, the, the antibiotic technology because this is war. And frankly, Bill, this is war. So we need to get rid of those patents. 
By the way, I just as an aside, I could make an argument that uh, uh, that same mindset should be a, 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 the, the driving force in these discussions, even when we are not in a pandemic, uh, because the right. high cost of, of some of these drugs that are oh, still God, under patent you. is one of the things that every politician will say, well, that's why we can't afford National Pharmacare. You know, the, the drugs are just too expensive. Well, they don't that's have to true. be. You're so right. And I want to say one thing. is I, All I ever hear and all I wearily post is a very interesting table, which I sent you, I think, but you probably have time to look at it, which shows this is pharma's argument, Bill. We're innovative, and if we're not paid to protect our secrets and keep patents and keep on profiting 20 years later or 30 years later because we extend the patents by things called evergreening, mm -hmm. then we won't be innovative. And I say, really? Okay, let's take a look at how innovative pharma's been in the last, I don't know, 10 years. So if you look at Press Greer International, which is a independently funded, non-pharma funded journal from France, they took a look at the last 10 years of new drugs, and lo and behold, two drugs can be placed in the major therapeutic innovation in which previously no treatment was available. So two, that's 0.2% of the thousand or so drugs licensed over that period. Now, if I told you that I was scoring 0.2% on my diagnostic acumen, you think, boy, I'm, I'm a pretty bad doctor. But no, that's the innovation. This is not innovation. So am I being unfair? Were there any others? Yeah, there were 10 drugs that were important, but with limits. And there were another 50 drugs out of a thousand, Bill, that had some value, but did not change practice. So the 93.5% of the other drugs were minimal additional value, superfluous, without evident benefit. So I always, I, I face this all the time. They're innovative and they're going to deny us new drugs. We don't have the new drugs anyway. So, and, and that said, whether or not you believe these drugs are valuable or not, 100% <clears throat> of these drugs had public funding to support their development. Well, that's why I don't understand this argument that they always make, that if we don't do this, if you don't give us this patent for, in most cases, this, this uh, 20 years, uh, then we're not going to be innovative. They're not getting the money. They're getting the money from the government. Uh, no, I mean, Pfizer, as you remember, doctor, Pfizer was the first one out of the gate with the vaccine, the first one to go public and say, our tests have shown them we're ready to go here. And they they bragged about the fact that we didn't take a dollar from the uh, the Operation Warp Speed thing in the States. No, maybe they didn't, but they took a lot of money from Germany, uh, which is where they're located, and they, which funded this this research. A hundred percent. That's why it's so important to examine these sound bites of we didn't take any money from the U.S. Oh, please. And it, it's it's... Yeah, yeah. There's example after example, as you said, about about drug development. You know, I, uh, I've participated in federal trials in the U.S. where we did a lot of drug development. We, it's a lot of public investment. We're in the hospital where junior doctors are working on these trials unpaid. Nurses are working on them. The drug, in the example I'm thinking of, is actually very good. It goes to market, and guess who profits? Completely. Does the NIH get any money for that? Not that most of us want to profit. From this kind of thing most of us but you know this is you know the whole public funding private profit argument and it it really it really comes down to that that's an empty threat it's an empty threat it's not innovative we're not looking at huge numbers of new new drugs and yes we're in a vaccine crisis and this is we've got a precedent the article by Barani in The Guardian highlighted the fact that this compulsory licensing is available to us. It's been used before. So mm -hmm. we just need some political will here to do it. Just, I, just, I, I know we can get lost in numbers on this, Doctor, but it's worth pointing out here. Uh, about 430 million doses have been produced so far this year, uh, enough for about 215 million people. That's globally. 16% of the, it's got, half of it has gone to 16% of the world's yeah. uh, richest yeah. populations. So um, it, it, what have we been saying from day one here? That we're never going to get rid of this virus until yeah. everybody is vaccinated, including third world countries. Uh, but this, let's, let's call it what it is. There's a lot of hoarding going on right now. If you got the money, you get the vaccines first. 100%. And the whole, you know, the director general of the WHO, I'm not sure you can get more authoritative, says it's a catastrophic moral failure. But frankly, it's an economic failure and it's a safety thing. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not going to go to Africa. You're not going to go to Africa, but someone's going to spread the variants coming from Brazil. And these things, we, I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist, but you can see that this is not going to be a problem that's going to go away at the end of this year. And we're looking at Africa is now making projections for widespread vaccination in 2024. I mean, really? 
By the way, it's it's not as if the, you know what they're asking them to do here is okay. You guys do all the heavy lifting and develop this stuff, and then just give us all the information so that we can mass produce this. Uh, there are fees involved in this, and and you know, these other companies that want to uh, jump into the into the game here, of course, they they pay a licensing fee, and uh, it's it's not as if the you know they're getting ripped off here. I mean, if the, you know the Pfizer's and the Moderna's and the Johnson and Johnsons are going to do very well, thank you, and they have over the years, and none of them went out of business. Uh, you know, as you mentioned in the past uh, examples where they said, look, you've got to start sharing this. So, I mean, that's a rather hollow argument. It's, it's hollow. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, um, the hu- there's huge support, of course, for patents, blindingly, obviously, by pharma, because they protect not profits. And people say to me, what are you, against profits? I say, no, I'm against obscene profits. Profits that are on the backs of public funding, which you and I have already paid taxes for, at least the U.S. citizens have paid taxes for. It's an argument that it's just... I'm recalling a scandal way, way back that was similar to mine when somebody said the facts of this case and its ethical implications are so straightforward as to be almost uninteresting. And that's the way I feel about this. Really? Sign those over. Get a modest fee for your investment, which was largely public money investment, and stop trying to profit because, uh, you know, you can think of a lot of conspiracy theories, uh, Bill, but... um, there's there's not there, there's support from people that I have great respect for, and then there is a lot of powerful people, including the Gates Foundation, that is preserving the way of life in terms of uh, patents, and I think that's a serious problem. Um, I just don't know the way forward except for your kinds of discussion. We discuss what this what this means. We make people aware. I'm no expert in vaccines. I certainly am an expert witness to the way pharma works. And um, there's just a lot of, you know, false, false facts on the whole vaccine issue. I'll give you an example for our listeners here. Uh, there's a company called BioLisa, which is a Canadian company, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're basically, they have approached AstraZeneca, Johnson yeah. & Johnson, uh, and, and asked the Canadian government to partner in this and said, look, we have the facility here. If you give us, uh, I'll use the non-technical term, give us the recipe uh, for this stuff, and we can mass produce this faster than these guys can so everybody in the world gets it. And basically they've said, now we're not interested. It's shocking. And the arguments are they can't do it. It wouldn't make that much difference anyway. We did it all, so why should we hand it over? I'm trying to say, oh, I know. If we hand it over, we won't be innovative anymore. I think I've run out of the arguments. They're all crazy. Well, maybe not crazy, but they're all ill-based and, 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 and not. Yeah, so that's what's happened. We actually have the opportunities. I mean, there's a number of I mean, I'm not endorsing any particular company, but there are, there, you know, this may not solve the world's problem on vaccines, but it'll make things better, including for Canadians. So, I don't well, know. Well, didn't we have the announcements? Uh, there have been two of them in the early part of this year, one in Montreal and then the announcement uh, that they were kind of breathed life back into Connacht uh, in, in the Toronto oh, area yeah. for this. And, and they say, okay, but it's going to take some time uh, to, you know, to get these things going again. These companies are already up and running, and they're already doing this, and they're simply yeah. saying, give us yeah. this, and we can mass produce this, get it out the door. We're already to do us. All we need is is the information, and, and this it, it's mind-boggling, and especially when you look at what's happened here. How many times uh, since the, the vaccine? rollout has started have we had delays because well, you know moderna had to hold up no we have a problem with pfizer development it may not get here in time this is is not the solution but it's part of the solution to simply say we just need to produce more of this stuff uh Absolutely. because when you ever you get into a situation with with a monopoly which is really what the major drug companies right. have here is they control the supply and, and, you know, so they can control the price. They can do whatever they want. They can hold things back if they want to. I mean, if, if but if these other situations were allowed to, to join the party and, and start manufacturing this stuff, they fill in those gaps when that happens. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's not the solution. It is part of the solution. And, and, and frankly, I think the fear is that we'll, as you point out, it should apply to drugs and it should apply outside of a pandemic. But right now we're in a pandemic, so let's apply it. And then we can talk about your potential profits, pharma, and your future going forward and how innovative you will or won't be if this happens. But right now we need to establish this. We really do. And we've got opportunities. As you point out, we've got offers. I don't know, so straightforward as to be almost uninteresting. 
why isn't government jumping on the ball here? I mean, I, I know that, you know, you've had discussions with, and you've gone to forums about this, and there have been some discussions with the World Health Organization and others about this. Uh, you'd think that the governments especially, who are the ones that are really feeling the pressure now because of, of lack of product here, uh, would be jumping on board and saying, yeah, let's have this discussion. I don't hear anybody talking. You know, Bill, I think that's a big, big question. Why has the federal government not seen this as an as the opportunity it is, as you've pointed out? I think there are a number of reasons, probably too many to discuss today, a number of reasons why the feds didn't say, let's get some publicly funded labs going instead of signing it all over to Sanofi. And I think you've covered that on previously on your program, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's, it's the same It's the same efforts to please pharma, Bill, would be my theory, my hypothesis, my working hypothesis. And um, it's not not good for Canadians and it's not good for the world because we are going to be looking at a continuing epidemic. That is the simple, blindingly obvious fact. If you don't vaccinate 2 billion people in the world, you're going to have this epidemic continuing for years and we're going to be living under the constraints we are and worse. So, because the variants will happen, and there will be, there will be, I'm again, I'm not a virologist, but I suspect this is going to be an additional problem, at least from whatever I read. Well, the phrase that comes to mind, Doctor, as we have this discussion is follow the money. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to be crass about this, but we do know, and, and this is not news to anybody, that the pharmaceutical industry is one of the strongest and most well-financed lobbyists uh, in the world. I mean, with the Canadian government, the U.S. government, go right down the list. Uh, and, and, you know, money talks in situations like this with 100%. governments. 100%. There's no, absolutely no question. I mean, I teach a course called Health and Pharmaceuticals at the University of Toronto. And my students enter, and there's a lot of, there are very philanthropic industry and i say things like don't make me kill you now let's go through it and basically they're you know the 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 10 big pharma corporations in the fortune 500 make more profits than the other 490 combined and recently you know the net profits are 13.7 percent compared to seven percent for other non-pharma industries i can give you all these crazy figures which i pour over and get outraged over but we should be outraged it's not an industry that is giving us health it is follow the money i don't think that's crass at all i think it's pretty summary statement and 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 your point's well taken i mean the money is there and this is not saying we're against profit that's not this that's not the argument here at all uh profit is fine i understand these guys are in business to make money and we, we have to understand that but at the same time people are dying Absolutely. I mean, you look at what's going on in India right now and has gone on for the last two weeks there. They can't get product. And they they produce it there, doctor. They produce it. I know. I know. The, you know, the AstraZeneca stuff, there's, but they can't get enough of it. I know. Well, there's all kinds of problems in India where I worked for, yeah. for, for about 20 years, actually. And, and you know, the hospital system there is not ideal at the best of times. And when I read it, I have this sense of rising panic, thinking what it must be. People traveling desperately in their carts and in their cars to hospitals miles away to try to find oxygen and 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 while we're looking at that and and to your point to follow the money let's examine the ceo's bonuses and, and their annual salaries really i mean this is this is um we, we don't even have to we, we look at brazil brazil is bad too i mean india is worse mm-hmm. of course in terms of all the numbers there's a billion people on that continent but there's there's a real there's just a sense that Maybe now, maybe in this pandemic, there'll be the chance to change what we've we've been looking at for for years, which is the privatization of profits and the socialization of losses. That's what it is. Pharma. You know, I did a study early in the in the 1990s with with a drug, and and it was a lot of effort and. You know, the, the companies end up profiting from it. I don't really want to profit from that, but that was public investment. It's public investment and private profits. Well, I, I thought there was an opportunity last year. I know we're just about out of time here, but last month, oh. rather, uh, with the budget. And, and I was kind of hoping oh, yeah. that the federal government would jump on, on bandwagon here. Uh, but they just come out. They, they allocated some money for science and technology, but it was pretty vague. And, and this yeah. is really something they could have been more specific on. We're beginning the discussion here. And I know it's ongoing in other parts of the world, too, Doctor. But uh, uh, let's uh, let's stay in touch with this. And uh, this, I know, is going to be something we're going to have to follow up and want to follow up on in the near future. Yeah, Thanks. I know. There's, a, there's a four or five excellent articles every day written on this. Thanks so much, Bill, for highlighting. This is such an important problem.
Well, Doctor, thank you for the great work that you do, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us. We'll talk about this Not again, you can be sure. My love to Hamilton. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. Stay well. Dr. Nancy Alvary, of course, a physician and professor at uh, U of T and, of course, Toronto General Hospital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The long-awaited, I mean, over two years, long-awaited federal budget came down last week, of course, with Finance Minister uh, Christy Freeland. And uh, the long-range question, of course, a lot of us had at the time as we were uh, sifting through that was, well, how's this going to be received by Canadians? Well, Ipsos has done some uh, rather extensive polling, as they always do, on the reaction to this. Joining us to talk about this is Daryl Burke, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, Daryl, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. I'm looking at some of the numbers here in the overview of the work that you guys did on this, Daryl, and it's uh, pretty obvious to me that uh, Canadian voters are not overwhelmed by this. They're not. I don't think they're even whelmed by it, are they? I mean, this uh, kind of, as you mentioned, shrug of the shoulders. That seemed to be the reaction from an awful lot of people. Yeah, nineteen uh, percent say, or one in five say uh, they give it a thumbs up. One in five say they give it a thumbs down, and the rest just shrug their shoulders. So, sixty-two percent of us say described our opinion as that. Uh, that's the kind of reaction you expect to get from the electorate if you're, you know, with an election hovering over at some point in the future anyway. Well, you would think that what they were putting on the uh, the agenda, you know, being their election platform, would move the vote uh, in, in the direction they were hoping. And, and yeah. it really hasn't budged anything. In fact, the headline on the release is, Budget Doesn't Budge National Party Standing. <laughs> and, and, that, and that's just the truth. And, and I, I, you know stands to reason we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic and a tight lockdown and a third wave as we move forward here and people are really focused on the short term and uh the budget was uh a lot of information that wasn't specifically related to what people are dealing with at the moment yeah it's it, i i think that was one of the initial criticisms i heard from an awful lot of people the day after was uh you know uh, this this is this is not where Canadian heads are at right now. They're, they're worried about vaccination. They're worried about getting back to work. They're worried about some of the other support programs. And I know there was some reference to some of those things, but uh, it just seemed as if they were missing the mark on, on on where the Canadian consensus was. Right. I mean, if the one big thing that popped out in all the coverage was childcare, and well, there are people who are affected by childcare obviously right now, and people are obviously concerned about children. It wasn't the most important thing. On, on the, the majority of the population's mind. I mean, you've got to remember, you know, the median age of a Canadian today is 41. It's not, uh, it's not 31. I mean, they're not, in, uh, they're not in sort of small kid territory at, at, the, at this point. So, you know, it, it, uh, it was one of those, uh, uh, you know, kind of political events that uh, um, just didn't really resonate. I mean, it got a lot more attention in, in Ottawa, um, and then it, uh, you know, a lot of attention in Ottawa uh, compared to the amount of attention that the public paid to it. Well, you know, because as we've gone through this with the pandemic economy and, and the concerns and, you know, how we're going to get back on our feet and things of this nature, I know that child care has always been a part of that discussion. And it's it's been debatable, well, not just this time during the pandemic, but for probably generations now, too. Uh, but it just doesn't seem front of mind right now. And and, and it, it was seemed unusual to me because uh, if you're going to present something like that, Daryl, and you want to catch the public's attention, you've got to show something shiny in that budget to say, here's what you're going to get. All they said was child care. We're going to talk to the provinces about it. Well, they've been doing that for 25 years. Yeah, no, and, and I'm sure for people who have small kids at home, their ears perked up when they heard about this. But then when they listen to the details, other than the $10 promise, it was like, how is this going to work? Well, we're not sure. Um, and it starts sounding an awful lot like promises that were made previously. Even the $10 thing, that's a goal. That, you know, they didn't guarantee that, did they? No, and, and, uh, and that's part of the issue here. I mean, it's how is it going to make a difference in my immediate situation? And as we've talked about uh, previously, you know, when people are thinking about their tomorrow, they're literally thinking about Tuesday. Um, they're not really thinking beyond that. Well, the other element about this, too, is, uh, you know, for those that have been paying attention, as soon as they, as, as Minister Freeland said, well, we're going to sit down and talk to the provinces about that, I thought, well, <laughs> here we go again. Uh, you know, the, the, the sense of acrimony that goes down any time is going to be a, a discussion, and this is what it's going to have to be, about, about federal versus provincial jurisdictions uh, and about who gets to roll this out and who gets to talk exactly what it's going to look like has always been a problem for federal and provincial governments, and I don't think it's going to be any different with this. Well, this is uh, you know a difficult situation um, for for the government because what you're finding is that the the mood that they're in, which is very election oriented, is not the mood that the Canadian public is in. So when you pitch things like this that come across as 
um, uh, you know, uh, you know, election oriented, maybe to a certain extent, um, something that uh, that seems like a, an election promise. People aren't thinking about choosing among the political parties right now. And even though you know they'll answer a question about how how you'd vote in an election tomorrow, they're not. The campaign isn't happening in their heads. The other thing too, and I guess most budgets are rather vague anyway. There wasn't a whole lot in the way of details about some of this stuff. That usually comes later on if any legislation is going to be introduced to try to follow up on some of this stuff. Uh, but, but you're right. I think what we were looking for, and I'm just judging this on the reaction I'm getting from the listeners over the last couple of months, is, okay, show us the way out of this. Uh, where are we, How are we going to get back on our feet? Uh, you know, the vaccination program, uh, I can understand they didn't want to you know, spend a whole lot of time on because it hasn't gone as well as they had anticipated and as well as we would want it to. Uh, but at least they could have said, okay, let's pivot and show, here's how we're going to get out of this and we're going to be back on our feet by X and X a day. And, and again, pretty vague about that. They offered to extend a lot of existing programs, but not much else. There wasn't much meat on the bone there, was there? Well, you know, they had 700 pages worth of meat. Yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, if you, if you cut down you know, trees and I think 700 pages, uh, you know, in the forest, will anybody hear it, right? And it's, uh, I guess the answer is, as we see here, no. Um, but uh, the, uh, the the truth is, in all of this, is that it hasn't hurt them and it hasn't helped them. Uh, they still have a really good lead. If an election was held tomorrow, they'd be knocking on the door of a majority. Uh, the opposition parties haven't found a way of using the budget in the other direction, which is to raise the questions exactly as you're doing right now. So it was kind of a non-event. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I'm, I'm always fascinated by the, the regional numbers. And, and I think one of the big takeaways from the research you guys did on this, Daryl, is, uh, is what's happening in Quebec right now, which, which might just give these guys pause to say maybe this is not the best time to call it an election. Yeah, exactly. We saw the uh, the uh, Liberals fall behind the Bloc Club by five points. Now, that's probably almost definitely not related to anything that was happening in national politics, probably more related to some of the... Uh, Commentary around the uh, uh, Quebec court decision on uh, on Bill C twenty one, which relates to wearing uh, you know identifiable religious symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's probably something happening around that that doesn't relate to the budget that's moved the numbers in the Bloc Québécois direction. Well, and as you mentioned in the in the uh, the summary here too, I mean that's that's essential because uh, the, the Liberals are doing pretty well in the Atlantic provinces. Uh, we know they're probably going to at least hang on to what they've got here in Ontario. There's going to be some challenges on some of those seats, but I mean, you know, in in the GTAHA, they're they're still pretty strong. Uh, not a whole lot happening though, uh, you know, west of of Ontario when you get into this. I mean, maybe maybe one or two things in BC, but that's one of the other things I found fascinating about that when you look at that area, and I think BC is is uh, very much in play when you look at the the rise of the NDP and their support not right. not not huge but enough to actually cause some problems right because the the liberal uh, the progressive pool of voters is different from the con- the conservative pool of voters and the, the progressive pool of voters has a number of choices whereas the conservative party at least at the moment really only has one um, and uh, so the the uh, the progressive vote when it splinters creates opportunities for the conservatives. So even if the liberals are leading uh, in a particular place, it may not be in the right way in order to win seats efficiently. They've won them extremely efficiently in 2015 and 2019, but um, there could be problems this time around. And one of the things you see is they've got a big lead in the province of Ontario. Um, they won just about every seat. Well, they won. I think as Aaron O'Toole's was the exception. Maybe there's one or two others. Um, uh, seats in the, in the 905 in, in, in Toronto, just in the greater Toronto area. Uh, but even if they win the same seats again by another five points, it uh, doesn't mean that they actually add to their seat count. So, you know, the problem that they've got is expansion now, and they have to do better in B.C. They have to start picking up something in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, where it's still a shutout for them. And then you go to Ontario and Quebec, and the only place where there's a substantial number of seats say maybe 20 up for grabs or whatever, is the province of Quebec. Do they just write off the western provinces? Now, I'm not trying to be overly cynical here, but, I mean, when they have had majority governments, Daryl, in the past, uh, they've had seats in Manitoba, and they've had, well, Ralph Goodale in Saskatchewan. Uh, They even had seats in Alberta at one time. I know that's ancient history to some people, but it did happen. Uh, Not so much recently, and and the prospects aren't really outstanding, are they? No. So uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, or Saskatchewan and Alberta, look a lot more alike than Manitoba. Manitoba stands a little bit outside of that. Yeah. So there might be uh, more of a possibility to add some, and the Liberals are, do have at least uh, one seat in Manitoba, I'm aware of. 
but they may have more. But uh, there's a possibility that they could win some seats in Manitoba, but there isn't enough seats there to get them to their majority. Um, so they have to find them in other places, and the only place that has a lot of seats uh, where they could potentially be in the game would be in the province of Quebec. And remember, in the last election, the, the Liberals and the uh, and the Bloc Québécois tied. So being five points behind means that some of those seats that voted Liberal last time around could go to one of the other parties. But is it fair to say, though, I, I found your comment a minute ago interesting, uh, the rise of the Bloc, the bloc is that an anti-Liberal sentiment or is that an anti-Federalist sentiment? It's, it's probably um, uh, the anti-Federalist and not so much Federalist. It, the, the thing about, uh, about what's happened in Quebec is it's gone from nationalist to nativist. Right. So what's happened is it's really a statement, a pro-Quebec culture statement, and looking at the vehicles that are best able to promote Quebec within Quebec, Quebec culture within Quebec. And for that, um, the PQ tends to do, used to do really well, but the CAC has now taken on that, uh, Coalition Avenar has now taken on that, that responsibility and that profile in the province of Quebec, along with the Bloc Québécois. So uh, whenever these issues move on to kind of a nativist type of a position about defending the French language, defending French culture, that's when you see the what used to be the sovereignist parties, but really aren't sovereignist in the same way anymore, start to rise. And the, the exception to that is the Parti Québécois is still nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a national level, uh, when we look at these numbers, and uh, according to the summary here, the Liberals were down a little bit, and so were the, the Conservatives, by the way, down just a little bit. Uh, is there a discussion going on in Ottawa, maybe behind closed doors, about the fact that Aaron O'Toole hasn't been able to get any traction out of this? Well, it's not just been behind closed doors. I mean, it's been all over newspapers and yeah. social media and the rest of it. Yeah, he's he's got a, he's got a big challenge. I mean, he's asking his he's he's in order to put him, his party in a position where they can win in Ontario, he's having to really stretch the tolerance of people who are part of the core conservative audience. So, and by that I mean Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular. Uh, so, asking them, for example, to absorb something in terms of climate pri- or uh, carbon pricing is a really, really big challenge, um, and uh, uh, it, it may cost them. How much of a millstone is that going to be for him, especially as you mentioned in the aforementioned Saskatchewan and Alberta? I, I, I just don't see them cozying up to this. And I, I've seen some op-ed pieces that have almost described him as a traitor now to the cause. Yeah, it, re- it really is. But what we do know is that the next election is not going to be fought on climate change. No. It's going to be fought on everything that we were talking about before. So the question is, are people uh, exercised enough? And, and, you know, we talked about this on your show. Uh, the idea that the deficit and debt, uh, you know, has magically evaporated as a result of what we're going through is not true. You can't spend, uh, you know, a generation educating Canadians that deficits are bad things to all of a sudden get them to think that they're, in, other than in, you know, the most urgent circumstances, anything but bad things. Um, so there's still an opportunity for for um, for O'Toole to unite people around messages that relate to sound economic management, you know, responsible public spending, um, and, and other things that and ethics that uh, that he he's been talking about and the government's challenged on, where he might be able to build something and maybe climate isn't uh, going to be the you know the divisive, divisive issue for him. But at the moment, we're not there. No, I know, but uh, by the same token, some of the comments I've seen from uh, from Premier Kenny and Premier Mo uh, say that uh, O'Toole's policy was actually inhibit or prohibit rather uh, the economic recovery that these two provinces specifically are looking at with fossil fuels. If, you know, the, the environmental issues aside, it's the economic issue that they feel carbon pricing would have on this. So that that may still be a millstone around his neck. Well, the question they're going to have to ask them is that is the mill themselves is the millstone smaller than the millstone that will be carried. Yeah. For- uh, placed firmly around their neck by um, by Justin Trudeau, uh, maybe with uh, with um, Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party, they can at least have a discussion, and that's that's not something they are having with the federal government, and we and we know that because they ended up in court. Does this uh, give rise to the possibility of of a, of a grassroots conservative movement out there? I mean, which ultimately at one point led to the the Reform Party, and then the Alliance Party, uh, where they just say, "Look, we're not happy with this apparent move toward the middle. Uh, we want something a little more hardcore." I mean, the, the, it happened with the Wild Rose Party in Alberta specifically, but I'm talking about a national party or a national movement. In the short term, probably not. In the longer term. Uh, it has to be weighing on Mr. O'Toole's mind. 
because as we found out, I, I don't think you're going to find too many of those people, if there are disenchanted voters, conservatives especially, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, they're not going to say, what well, the hell with you, we're going to vote liberal. They just won't vote. Well, they just won't vote or they'll vote for something else. And, and yeah. uh, or, or, like you said, they, they, they will not vote. But uh, uh, the um, they showed up in, in massive numbers in the last election campaign. Turnout was way up. And when people are angry, they do tend to show up. Um, and uh, and you know, part of the reason for dissatisfaction is they actually won the popular vote. Um, so the, the this is an extremely uh, interesting period in Canadian politics. Uh, this is going to be... Uh, the next opportunity for uh, the Conservatives to find their feet again, or is Aaron O'Toole going to turn into the Conservative Party's Michael Ignatieff? We don't know. So in Ottawa right now, as, as they sift through your results uh, of, of uh, what you guys did with the polling here, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that the, the mindset for the Liberals right now is, okay, we better hit the pause button. Let's just concentrate on, on getting the vaccination program going. Uh, we'll leave this other stuff for later. The Conservatives have got to figure, okay, we, uh, we've got to hit the, the accelerator here. We've got, we've got an opportunity here, uh, and we need to take advantage of it. Uh, you know, I'm, I might be in the other direction. Really? Uh, the liberal, yeah, the Liberals probably would look at the vote numbers and then look at the budget numbers and say, well, it didn't hurt, it didn't help. Um, but, you know, we think we can sell this thing on the, uh, on, on the husting, so we'll, we want to do that. And by the way, uh, we've got such a big lead right now, we need to take advantage of it. Uh, and the Conservatives are probably thinking, please, 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 don't pull the trigger now. Uh, you know, you don't want to go into an election that far behind. Yeah, that, it is a significant lead, and notwithstanding the problems that the Liberals have in Quebec right now, they, they're going to look at national numbers right now. But as you've told us in, in past polling, uh, it's not just the percentage of uh, voters that said they might vote Liberal. It's it's where those votes are. Uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, when you look at, uh, as you say, around southern Ontario, that's voter-rich there, but there's only X number of seats there. They can increase their vote total there, but they're not going to increase the seat level. Right, and and the and the other thing uh, that Aaron O'Toole is probably thinking, along with Jagmeet Singh, uh, is uh, I I understand the extreme disadvantage I have campaigning in a pandemic. I can't tour, I can't do you know media events all over the country. I can't build my profile. All I'm going to get is a you know a couple of cracks at a debate and maybe some paid media. The Liberals are going to have an overwhelming presence in the, in the campaign that will have a very difficult time challenging and that the proof of that is what's happened in the pandemic campaign so far leaving newfoundland aside uh, yeah, exactly. and uh and and they would probably prefer to string things out until we get people vaccinated uh you know it's a safer situation in, in which people can go uh vote in person and also uh, they'll be able to actually run something that resembles what a, a campaign might look like going into uh, an election campaign uh Aaron O'Toole, you know, running 10 points behind with uh, no ability really to catch up in the course of what will be maybe a six-week election campaign. Uh, that, that You can't be looking at that with any great uh, great, great relish. No, you wouldn't So think. I think it's the, the opposite of what you actually just said. Well, we'll see how they play out. How they've fooled well, us I before. Hundred percent wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're applying logic, Daryl. You're applying logic, and if, you know I, you do that at your own risk. I think when you're talking about yeah. federal politics. Really <laughs> Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this, Daryl. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Daryl Berker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, interesting polling. Google uh, Ipsos and get the results yourself. It's a rather extensive server that they did. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.